Good to be sharing God's Word with you again this morning. If you have, you have, your, if you have your Bible, sorry, get over my, uh, my tongue. Um, turn to Judges chapter 13. In Judges chapter 13, we'll read from verse 2 to 5 this morning. As we continue our look at the life of Samson. was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bore not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive, and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo... Thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come, upon, come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to look into your word. Father, we just thank you that you have preserved it for us, you have written it for us, and Father, we can turn to it that we might grow and know you more. So Father, this morning I pray that our hearts would be open to your truth and the spirit within us would teach us your ways. Father, use me for that purpose and Father, give me the right words to speak so that my brethren here would be encouraged and challenged to live further for you. Lord, that we might be strengthened in the inner man, that we might live lives that glorify and lift up the name of your son. Father, we thank you once again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had an interesting uh, question raised to me by a, uh, a brother recently, which developed into an interesting conversation. And it was, how do we take all these Bible characters that we read about in, the, in, in God's Word um, that have such deep flaws? So you look at someone like King Solomon, right? The Bible says he was the wisest man in the whole world, and he specifically prayed for wisdom to the Lord, and God said he gave him that wisdom. But you know something? Solomon wasn't exactly a perfect man in all of his ways. The Bible says that he ended up marrying women that he wasn't supposed to marry, made decisions that he wasn't supposed to make, and he ended up uh, compromising a lot of things in his life because of bad decisions and bad choices that he made. But it's not just Solomon. I mean, King David, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And we know that he committed adultery and had a, a woman's husband killed, essentially. He conspired to actually have him killed so he could take his wife. Not a very good look for someone who's a man after God's own heart. Moses. I mean, Moses was in a desert. He was a murderer. He killed someone, ran away, and was happily just herding sheep. In Midian, and would have probably stayed there for the rest of his life if God, God had not intervened. We know the Apostle Paul, who was called Saul, was killing Christians when God caught up with him. And you can probably think of many more Bible characters, and you can go into, you know, James and Peter and how he denied Jesus, and you can go through almost all of the Old Testament saints, including Abraham, who lied about his wife to Abimelech, and, and again to Pharaoh, to, to, so that he wouldn't be touched by these people. The question is, how do we deal with those things? How, how should we treat those sort of characters? Because the, the question may arise in your mind, if they were mighty men of God, if these people were strong enough to be recorded in the Word of God, but they had such deep character flaws... What hope is there for me? That's one way you can look at it, isn't it? The other way you can look at it is that we're actually all the same. And God can do amazing things through flawed people. And he does. And it's actually God. God is the one who actually works through us and within us despite our weaknesses, despite our flaws, 
and he is able to achieve his purposes through his people. And the hope that we have is that not that we have to compare ourselves to a King David who slew mighty Goliath or a, or a, a Solomon or an Abraham, but we should look to these people and say, despite their own flaws, God was able to do unbelievable things. And he can do those things through me as well, despite my own flaws. So let's turn to God, because in the, the central theme of the Bible, you know something? I'm sorry to break this news to you all. It's not about us. It's not. I'm sorry to break that news, but this, this Bible that we read about, it's not about how mankind, you know, it was you know, God put him there and how mankind is wonderful and God saved him because saved us because we are so wonderful and precious and also I'm sorry. That's not the central theme of the Bible. The central theme of the whole Bible is how wonderful God is. And despite all the mess ups, despite the fact that we brought death and sin into this world. And we still mess up over and over and over again. God still loves us and he still goes chasing up after us. And he still gives us his grace that we might glorify him in the end. And that's the purpose of the whole thing. So we're looking at another flawed character. Samson. For most of you who know Samson, have read the story of Samson. This guy had some pretty big flaws. But we should never look at his flaws and use them as an excuse for our flaws. We should look at how God was able to use him. And despite his own weaknesses, God achieved the purposes that he sought to achieve. God's promises, God's purposes are never ruined, even with our silly mistakes. So we're going to continue to look, to look at the life of Samson. Last time we caught up, which was about three weeks ago... I went through the first verse with you, so I'm going to do a little bit of a recap so we know where we're at. Okay, So we are looking at, you're in the book of what's called Judges. Okay, Now Judges was a specific period in Israel's history, which lasted about 300 years. It came directly after that God had saved them out of Egypt. They spent 40 years going in circles around, around uh, the desert and then they came into the promised land. Moses didn't enter the promised land, as most of you know, but Joshua did. So Joshua spent the rest of his life clearing out all the inhabitants of the land so that Israel could take that possession to themselves as God had promised. Now Joshua had passed away. Joshua was no longer there. Joshua decreed and blessed Israel and said, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. And he warns them. And he says, If you start messing around, following the gods of these other people who we've, we've gotten rid of out of this particular uh, uh, land, people who were sacrificing their own children to their gods, who were doing abominable things whom God hated, and God said, I don't want you intermarrying with these people. I do not want you following their laws and chasing after their gods. And if you begin to do that, I'll begin to bring back or take back my hand of providence upon you. And you're going to have trouble from all sides. Because even though they, they, they moved all these inhabitants out of where the land that they were in, and the 12 tribes took their... Um, they took their plots of land and each tribe, as you know, there were 12 tribes in Israel, they all settled in a different piece of land. And God says, once you've settled down, if you begin to chase after the gods of these other nations, you're going to get no end of trouble. And guess what they did? The very thing that they said they wouldn't do. So... In this particular time, which was about 1,100 years before Jesus was born, we find this period called the Judges. There was no central government in, uh, in Israel. There was, a, there was a, um, a place where they worshipped, but there was no central government. Each tribe had to manage its own affairs. There, there, under Joshua, there was a massive army that Joshua commanded, which included all the, the, the tribes of Israel, but that had been disbanded now. 
and each of those tribe, each of those groups of men went back to their own families and what they were seeking to do was just to settle down now and to find some peace. But there was no peace because the people they displaced, the Philistines and some of these other ones, weren't too happy about being kicked out of their, out of their land. So they would send raiding parties into Israel from time to time and they would cause all types of problems and havoc. And this is where, if you look at verse 5, God says um, he was going to bring a person in or another judge who we call Samson and it says that he shall be a Nazarite unto God in verse 5 from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Was it, were the Philistines in charge of all the land of Israel? No, but they were causing a lot of problems, constant attacks to Israel. Okay, in the midst of all this, we have a man called Manoah and his wife. And they live in a little town called Zorah, and they belong to the tribe of Dan. Okay, so out of those 12 tribes, they belong to a specific tribe called Dan. And Zorah was a border city. So it was a city right on the edge between the Philistines and Israel. Probably not the best place you'd go and build a new home and, and establish yourself because living on the edge meant trouble normally. But it was almost a picture of what was happening to all of Israel. So Zorah was a what we call a border city wedged between these two people. Now, as I've mentioned already, the Philistines were not happy about being kicked out. They wanted back in. They wanted that land for themselves. So in the midst of these circumstances, in verse 2, it tells us that there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and born not. So right from the beginning, God is clear about what the problem is here. Okay? The problem is with this specific family. So we've gone from a nation now to a specific husband and wife and the, their personal problem, apart from the Philistines, their personal problem was that they couldn't have children. She was barren. She couldn't have children. Now, I don't understand. I'm not sure if you understand. There is a stigma in our society about not having children. If you can't have children, and I know a number of couples who have struggled with having children. It's a pretty hard time when, you, when you're trying to have children yourself and you can't have them and you see other people around you have children. It can be quite demoralising for you. And a lot of people in our society struggle with that. But, hey, what? Look, there's actually technology that we have you know, with IVF and all those sorts of things, and, and I won't go into the, the, the morality of some of those things, but people are desperate enough to go to all types of lengths and spend all types of money to have children because not having children for some people is unthinkable. Now, Israel, if you were living in Israel in these days, do you reckon it would be easier or harder than our society? It was more difficult. It was more. Because the society was run very, very differently than it is today. If you didn't have children in Israel in those days, there were a number of problems that you were looking at apart from the personal grief that you were going through. So, if you were a barren woman, if you weren't able to have children, there was, apart from the personal shame of not actually being able to have children um, and the feeling of heartbrokenness and, and, and being deficient, um, there was the problem of not having people or children to carry on your family name which was ultra-important. You know how important names are to Jewish people? Have a read through some of the lists that they keep in the Old Testament. Have a read through how important those things are. You know, we, when we read the Bible and we start going through and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so, you know something? To God, that's important. That's why you had it recorded in there. To the Jews, it was ultra-important. Ultra-important. You needed to know who you were descended from, which tribe you were in. Even today, it's ultra important for a Jewish person to actually know what their lineage is. 
So if you didn't have any children, it meant your particular line stopped. It didn't continue. And that was a difficult thing to accept. Because if you had land, it may mean that you actually had to pass that land not on, not on to your children, but to on the next of kin, which may have been cousins or whoever. If you had no children in Israel in those days, it was a social shame, socially. Most of you would know. In Jesus' day, they, the disciples would go to Jesus and, and some people, or one specific story, which we won't necessarily go into, there was a, they were passing by a man who was born blind. Okay? And the disciples asked an interesting question of Jesus and they said, whose fault was it? that he was born blind? Was it his or his parents? And Jesus' response is, neither his nor his parents, but that I would actually do the works of God and, and God would be glorified through it. The prevailing thought in Israel, going back a long, long time, was that if something bad happened to you, if you had some sort of disease, if you had some sort of problem, and if you were barren and couldn't have children, guess what? You were probably a sinner. And God was probably judging you because you were a sinner. So there's always a niggling thought that as you were going around in public, that people were judging you all the time. So not only did you have to put up with the, with the heartache of not being able to have children and possibly not having people to, or children to actually pass your inheritance onto, but on top of that, there would have been people in the society who would have looked at you with a... Interesting look. Along with this problem come other practical problems. Do you know why people in poor countries have so many children? You notice that? Have you noticed that rich countries only have one or two children? Advanced countries have one or two children. But you go to the poorer countries and they have... Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And some people say, oh, well, you know, they've got nothing else to do but to have kids. No, there's actually a practical reason for it. Because, one, in poorer countries, there's a high infant mortality rate. A lot of the children don't actually survive. The second part of the, the equation is that if you owned a plot of land and you were a farmer, and most of these people were rural people, you know, working farms... If it was just you and your wife, you know, if you broke a leg, it'd be pretty hard to go doing your stuff and collecting food and sowing seed and all those types of things. So having children meant you had backup. You see, life was very different in those days. You didn't have um, work cover. You didn't continue to get paid while you were sick at home. So if a husband and a wife were by themselves and they, all, all they had was to rely on themselves and you had no other sons who could work the field, you know something? You'd want to pray that you didn't have any accidents. That's why we find in the Bible that one of the main purposes that the church devoted itself to in the early days is to the widows and orphans. Widows and orphans. And we might say, well, why don't we do that today? Why doesn't our church look after widows and orphans? Because the society is very different today than what it was then. If you were a widow in those days, you had to fend for yourself. So the church saw that as an obvious need. Without a husband, without children, without male children to actually feed you and bring home the, the, the food from the fields, pretty hard for a woman who's... 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of age, if you reach that age, to be able to support herself. So there was a very practical reason for having and wanting sons specifically in Israel. So you didn't have the support in the old, in the old age. Now, the pattern of marriage was this. If you were... A husband and a wife, and specifically why you'd want a son, right? If you had a son and you had land that was part of your family's land, what would happen is if you had sons, the sons would go out, find a daughter, 
of someone else, get betrothed, and then what would they do? They'd bring that daughter back to your land, and they'd get married and live on the same land. If you had a daughter, someone else's son would come and, and betroth, get betrothed to her, and he'd take her away. So if you only had female children, hey, you were stuck back in the same boat. Because all your daughters, if they got married, would eventually end up leaving home and would settle in other people's uh, land and help them with their, with, their, um, with their living. So there was a practical reason for this whole thing, the practical reason for wanting male children on top of that. Now, that was a standard thing that would happen. But you know something beautiful? This is the situation that Manoah and his wife found themselves. So you understand clearly this type of betrothal and marriage. This is what Jesus was speaking about when he was talking to his disciples. Turn to John chapter 14 with me. So you understand, and I'm hoping now you get a clearer picture of what Jesus was talking about when he made certain promises to his disciples. Now, you're familiar with these verses. Now, think about these verses in terms of marriage, in terms of what I've just told you. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there may, you may be also. You know what he was talking about? Marriage. When Jesus came to the earth, he left his father's land, his father's property, his father's kingdom, and he came to the earth, to a foreign land, to look for a wife. We call that wife the church. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you have accepted him as your Lord and Saviour, you belong to the church. So when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he was saying, he was explaining things in terms they very well understood. That the son would go out, look for a wife, they would get betrothed. There'd be a promise that would be made. And he, what he would then do is that once he's got his eye on a particular girl, once he's got permission that everything's fine from her family and his family, he'd say to her, I'm going to come back and get you. But in the meantime, I'm going to go and build back at my dad's place another place for us to live. So what they would do is actually add on to the existing home a further structure. So you have this family just kept on growing. So he'd go away, prepare the house, and he'd come back, take her, and be with him. That's why we believe in a rapture. Because that is when Jesus comes back and he actually takes us home, his bride, to be with him in heaven. That's the picture. That's a beautiful picture, by the way. It's the greatest love story that the husband would give himself completely. That's why, you know, the marriages that I've done, it says that we should, that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the challenge to us as men. Ladies, sorry, we fail you often. We don't quite match up to that beautiful standard that he said. But I pray that we try and that we are the men that God has called us to be. But that is the picture that Jesus speaks about when he's actually promising to his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. And we know that that promise is not just to his disciples, but to every one of us. Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus is part of that church, and, will one, and one day Jesus will come and take us home to be with him. In the meantime... We are being prepared for heaven. Prepared. You see, Jesus didn't come to a place that was like heaven, did he? He didn't come and find a wife that was just like him. He's gone and found a wife who was essentially living in the gutter. Who was essentially nothing like him. But yet he looked at this, this one and he said, I want her, Dad. And his dad said, 
you're going to have to pay for it. And he did. And he ended up paying for us, or by going all the way to that cross, to clean us. You see, we were absolutely filthy. So picture a man who's gone looking for a wife in a different place, and he's found someone who's utterly disgusting. And he said, I, I see something. I want her. His dad said, okay. You better clean her up before you bring her home. So he did. So when we pray, when we speak about being saved, what we're saying is that Jesus shed his blood, which cleanses us from all of our sins. And now what we're doing, as the bride, as the bride, we're actually being prepared for this, for this wedding that's going to take place. And so you know what he's doing? He's teaching us what it's like to live in heaven. He's given us a taste of it already. So he's planted the Holy Spirit in our own hearts, and the Holy Spirit is our teacher. It's a bit like going to etiquette school. Whereas I normally used to be eating food with my hands, I'm being taught how to eat food with a knife and fork. Whereas I was used to lying, God's now teaching me how to speak the truth. Whereas I was used to hating, God's teaching me how to actually love. Do you understand? He's preparing us for a life in heaven. He's preparing us and making us his bride. And the Bible says one day, when he comes to take us home with him, we will be absolutely perfect in every way. I don't know about you, but that excites me. That absolutely excites me. Because one day, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more crying. We'll be perfect. And all that, all that stuff that we wear now, or that this body that's decaying, will be gone. And God will give us new bodies, perfect in every possible way. And we'll be fit for heaven. We'll be made fit to walk the streets of heaven. Because at the moment, this can't go there. Okay, turn to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2 with me. Just to lay with this point a little bit more, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given us unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Do you like that? That is that picture. That is that story. That we've escaped the corruption because he came and he chose us and he wants to bring us home and he's preparing us for that. And one day we'll be fully partakers of his divine nature. He's planted a seed within us and he wants it to grow. And he's preparing us for the time when, when we will be like him. When we will love perfectly as he does. When we, will, we, we will, when we will be forgiving and kind and merciful and full of grace as he is. So when you feel that you're defeated in this life, or if you feel that you can't win, understand that in God's eyes... You've already won. He's done it all for you already. There is no thing that you have mountain that you have to climb because he's climbed it already for you. If you understand who you are, if you understand what's in store, and if you understand that you have a saviour who actually is, um, uh, what's the word, interceding for you even now, there is nothing that will stand in God's way or Jesus' way from taking us home to be with him. And the Bible tells us here that we've been given everything that we need to live the godly lives that he has called us to live. Everything that we need. If you believe that and you understand who you are, you are most likely to live the godly, the godly life that God has called you to live. 
if you see yourself still as that dirty, lost, weak individual that God found, then you'll, you'll continue more to live like that than the bride that God's preparing for heaven. Know that he has promised you eternal life. And he has done that because of love. Because he loves us. And he showed that love by giving his life on that cross. But you know something? The love that he showed us then doesn't, did not finish. He still loves us. And he's looking forward to the day when he comes to this world to take us home to be with him. This is one amazing story of love. Now let's go back to Manoah and his wife. Look at Judges chapter 13, verse 3. It says there, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not. So he knew them personally and what they were going through. But thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now we find that an angel of the Lord appears to the woman with a very specific message. He goes to her and he says, I know your problem. I know you personally. And this message is that I know that you're barren. I know that you want to have children. And despite your situation, God will give you a child. And there's no doubt in this message. You will have a son. You will have a child. When God declares something, when God makes a promise, there is never any doubt that he'll fulfill it. And this is the same approach that we should have for every promise that God has made in his word. And don't you find it interesting that in the Bible we find this particular message repeated over and over again? How many women do you know in, in, the, in the Bible that were actually struggling to have children? And then all of a sudden God comes along and says, I'm going to give you a child. And that child turns out to be something quite special. We find it with Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah and Elizabeth even in the New Testament who then has John the Baptist. And marriages in this marriage and its infertility is also symbolic. It's also a picture of Israel's spiritual life at that time. The scriptures teach us that among the attacks of the Philistines, which were always there and constant, that the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. They were making decisions apart from God's leading. They were doing things and making choices that were drawing them further and further away from God. But in the midst of this barrenness, a spiritual barrenness, like like living in a desert, the Bible says that God broke through. He sends his angel into this darkness, into this barrenness, among people who were not even necessarily even crying out for help. And he says, I'm going to do something about this situation. God broke through to dry and unfruitful lives. And the indication from all of Scripture is that God keeps doing this. God keeps breaking in. So imagine this world as dark as it is. God, with his unbelievably beautiful light, comes into the darkness and shines in the darkness. He breaks into this world and he reaches a dry and thirsty people with the water of life. God's love and mercy reach into this world that's full of evil and sin. The culmination of this truth comes with the incarnation when God sent his only son into the world so that he might save the world from its sin. Turn to John chapter 3 verse 16. John chapter 3 verse 16. Now, you're familiar with John 3.16, I'm assuming. But if we read to, the, to verse 21, we'll get a fuller picture of what God's talking about. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. 
because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now this is the message of the gospel. That God loved the world so much that he sends his son on a rescue mission to this, to this place. It's full of sin and darkness and dryness and barrenness. And he says, I'm going to save these people. So, But when God sends his light into the world, those who were living in darkness, most of them, don't like that light. Because as that light shines on them, it exposes who they actually are. And you know something? When you look at yourself sometimes in the mirror in the morning, you don't necessarily like what you see. And people, when, they, when they're actually confronted with the light of God, are able to look at themselves and see the absolute filth. But you know something? The problem is, as scripture tells us here, is that they like their evil deeds so much, they would rather stay in the filth and pretend it's not there. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You'd rather pretend that it's not there, like it doesn't exist. I haven't got this problem. Maybe if I forget about it, it'll go away. Because I'm so attached to the things that I do in this world. I'm so attached to those evil things that bring me pleasure. I would rather get away from this light. Because this light's exposing a bit too much of what, of what I'm like. And the Bible says that the, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. This is why we have so few people who will turn to the grace of God and accept something so simple who would accept an unbelievable gift of salvation where you don't have to work for it. You know why? Because it exposes who they are. But God continues to break through. And I thank God every day of my life that he continued to break through for me. It took 10 years for me to, to accept his message. 10 years. That's a lot of breaking through to be honest with you. That's a lot of darkness that he had to put up with and keep chasing me until he eventually got me. I know you feel the same. Because if God had given up on us, we would not be here today. And I thank God that he, doesn't, he, he still doesn't give up on me. Thank you, brother. You see, this is the same thing that we find with Abraham. God broke through to a man living in Haran, and he said, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give you. The same thing he did with Moses, who was happy, happily herding sheep in Midian in a desert. And God says, come here through a burning bush. And he says, I've got a job for you to do. This is the same thing he did with the apostle Paul. While Paul's busily going around trying to kill Christians, God sends a blinding light. He sends his son to actually knock this guy right off his horse and say, I've got a job for you to do. And it's going to, take, it's going to give you a lot of suffering, but through you I'm going to be glorified. God continues to break through and reach people, and we should be thankful every day of our lives that he broke through to our lives. But this is the same desire that we should have. Don't give up on other people. Because God has that desire. If he had that desire and that patience with us, we need to have it for other people as well. Don't give up. If you've been praying for a loved one, if you've been praying for people who have persecuted you, hate you, continue to pray for them. Continue to be kind and gentle to them. Continue to be a good testimony in front of them. Continue to share the witness and be a witness of the gospel that changed your own life. Don't be afraid. Because there is no one and nothing that can take away what God has given you. Death cannot, cannot beat you now. But there are plenty out there in this darkness who are absolutely lost and don't know it. 
And while they're cowering in the darkness and trying to uh, get away from the light, we need to be those lights. As painful as it is sometimes, and as difficult and awkward as it might be, when you do shine the light in front of people, continue to do it. Jesus did it his whole life. Yes, it cost him his life. But if it costs us our lives, hey, I've got something much better to look forward to than this world. So the principle we find here is that God breaks through the darkness and despair and enters into the, the, the desperate lives of men and women. And he calls us next to separation. He calls us to a life that's different to everyone else, a life of separation and holiness, consecration. Look at what he then tells Manoah's wife in verse 4 and 5. It says, Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. The angel of the Lord gave Manoah's wife specific instructions on how she was to care for herself and do the right thing because that which was growing inside her would be set apart for God and she needed to live a life that was set apart from now. She wasn't allowed to drink wine nor strong drink. Strong drink being stronger than wine. She wasn't allowed to eat anything that was unclean. You might say, well, what has that got to do with anything? Well, we'll talk a bit about the Nazarite vow in a second. Simply, he was saying to her, I need you to obey me now. I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to give you a son. But I want you to obey me. Her child was to be a Nazarite, meaning that in his life, he would be separate from everyone else, very, very different from the, the common people around him. And he would be set apart from his mother's womb. So a Nazarite okay, was a specific type of dedication or dedicated life. Okay? Um, a Nazarite would not drink any alcohol at all. They wouldn't even touch the fruit of the vine, grapes. A Nazarite would not cut his hair. They'd have to allow their hair to continue to grow their entire lives. He was dedicated unto God. He also wasn't allowed to go near and touch dead people. Now, in a sense, this specific individual, who will then grow up to be Samson, was part of a tradition that was already happening a Nazarite was, uh, the Nazarite vow was already being made before Samson came along. But this was an indication of how separate God wanted this person to be. Yeah, a guy with long hair and not allowed to touch any you know, unclean thing and, and not to eat certain foods. And not, he was almost like a priest in a sense, but not a priest. When God saves us, when God entered into our own lives and made us a promise, he expects us to be separate too. Just as he expected Manoah's wife to be separate. When Jesus saves us, he calls us to a life of holiness. And the term holiness, in its essence, has built in it the idea of separateness, distinctness. He calls us to a life separate from sin, separate from, the, from the, the things of this world. We're called to become holy. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 18 with me, please. Now look at what's happened to us and now what God expects from us. In Romans chapter 6, verse 18, he says that we have 
been made free from sin. Free from sin. So that blood that Jesus shed for us has cleansed us from all sin. So being then made, is that past tense, present tense or future tense? That's past. That's done. So what God did for us, he made us free from it. In his eyes, we're not sinful anymore. He paid for that sin. So being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your member servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. People, if God has saved you and has cleansed you from sin and has given you a special promise that he will one day come and, and take you home to be with him, he expects that we use these, this body, for righteousness now. We're no longer servants of sin. We've been called to be servants of righteousness. We have called to be separate from the world who are slaves of sin. We were once slaves of sin, but the Bible says we are no longer slaves of sin. And we should never see ourselves in that way anymore. Now, Manoah, Manoah's wife had a, a strong motivation to follow that command, to not have any wine, to, to, to not eat unclean food. Do you know why? Imagine it. She's been desperate for a child for so long, Right? He comes an angel of God and says, I'm going to give you a child, but you aren't to drink any wine and you're not to eat false, any, any wrong food. Let me ask you, women, do you think that she would have thought in her mind, oh, I don't know about that. You know, I do like a good glass of wine in the evenings. Do you think in her mind she would have thought twice about whether she would have obeyed that? Why? Because her motivation was very strong. She wanted that child. Would she have put at risk that child at all? No way. No way in the world would have even crossed her mind to go and, and get involved in these things that God was telling her, don't do that. I'm going to give you a child, but don't do that. What's your motivation? Is it as strong as Manoah's wives to keep from sin? What's your motivation? Is it you? Or is it your beloved? When Jesus says that I will come back and take you home to be with me, what's your motivation for keeping pure? Is it for you or is it for him? If it's for you, if you're trying to keep pure and, and holy and thing for yourself because you want to feel good about yourself, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. If your motivation is because of him, because you long to be with him, because he's shown you such love that you, that you can't even explain it and you long for the day when you will see his face, so you want to keep yourself pure for him, then you have every opportunity, every chance of actually keeping yourself holy and pure. What's your motivation? Is it as strong as Manoah's wife's motivation who wanted to see the face of her son? Whose face are you seeking? God has planted something within our own lives that will one day be complete. One day we will shed this mortal body. God will give us a, a, an absolutely new one and we'll be glorified and we'll see him, the Bible says, face to face and we'll see him because we'll be like him. Now that's what I'm looking forward to and that should be our motivation. Trust him and obey. Let's, close. Let's wrap this thing up. So we've seen that the Son of God has sent into the world to find a wife. And the Bible says the church is that wife. And the scriptures say that indeed he's found one and he hasn't chosen us from a royal family. He hasn't chosen us because of our inherent beauty or our, our perfectness or our, our special etiquette or the way we speak. God says that he chose to bestow his love upon us. And despite our, our crimes, despite our sin, despite we were really destined for judgment, God said, I'm going to change all of that. 
I'm going to clean her. I'm going to justify her. I'm going to prepare her for a life in heaven. We've also seen that a life without the Lord Jesus Christ is a barren life. The Son of God broke through the darkness to save us, but not just to save us, but to continue to give us life and help us to grow. Even as Manoah's wife was barren, so too will our spiritual lives be barren if we're not connected to the Lord. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do... You know what that last word is? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So without Jesus, we can do nothing. If you aren't connected to Jesus today, if you haven't been grafted into his vine and are drawing life from him, if you don't have that, then you don't have anything. And I'm sorry, you can't do anything. Everything that you think that you can do, Every, every achievement, every, um, every uh, good and positive thing you think God is actually recording, the Bible says are like filthy rags to him. They don't actually mean anything. Because if they're not done according to the Son of God, they're not being done at all. They have no value. If you're a child of God and are looking forward to his coming, then be separate from the things of this world Look to him as your motivation for wanting to be pure and holy. Obey him in everything he tells you to do. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, then none of this applies to you. None of it. None of this can be said for you. You were lost and still in your sins. You're at this moment cut off from a relationship with God. And you have nothing to look forward to. In fact, the only thing you have to look forward to is an eternity of torment. Because God's created a place for everyone who doesn't choose him. And that place is totally devoid of his love, his grace, his mercy, his peace. It's a place of utter torment. But the good news is that Jesus is still breaking through the darkness in this world. And he still wants and calls to you if you don't know him today. He's calling to you. So you have every opportunity to answer that call. And receive the wonderful gift that he's given. And receive the promise. You see, even now, as you hear these words, Jesus may be knocking on your heart. And saying, let me in. He won't do it by force. He is the absolute and perfect gentleman. But he says in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. If you haven't opened the door to him yet, if you don't know him personally yet, open the door. Open the door and know what real life is. God bless you. Thank you.